Device Nation. Greetings and salutations, Device Nation. You're home for the greatest show on earth, and we know that show is Medical Device Sales with ideas, stories, and interviews to help take you from good to great. I hope you're having a great day. Hope you had a great week. I know I did. This is Kevin Brown, your voice of Lewinick Safe Zones in times of anti-inclination. Now, if that was incomprehensible to you, let not your heart be troubled because it was completely incomprehensible to me. And it's deep waters when you start getting into spinopelvic mobility as related to total hip arthroplasty. One of the leading orthopedic surgeons in the country confided in me off the air that when he went and heard a talk on this very subject, that he had to go back to the speaker three times before it started to make sense to him. But you know what? It's important that you grasp it. You'll never look at an x-ray the same way again, and it'll give you some answers when what's going on makes no sense, especially in these recurrent dislocating hip revisions that we find ourselves in sometimes. So it's worth it. It is absolutely worth the struggle of wading through the numbers and the angles. Uh, But then on the other side, there is clarity and knowledge and good stuff. And I am so thankful that Dr. Russell Bodner is stopping by to help us make sense of it all. So let's get right to it. And then we've got some great stuff to talk about on the other side. Welcome to the show, Dr. Russell Bodner. It's great to be here, Kevin. Dr. Bodner, it's such an honor to get to speak to you today. I can't wait to ask you about predictive analytics, uh, spinopelvic relationships, FAI, your workouts at Poly Pavilion. But first, I need a little context. What put you on the road to being an orthopedic surgeon? That started when I was about 10. I was growing up in northern New Jersey, and I loved sports. My heroes at that time were the New York Knicks, New York Jets, and both of them had star players, Joe Namath on the Jets and Willis Reed on the Knicks that had terrible knees. And both these guys had been operated on by surgeons in the New York area. And I said, that's what I want to do. I want to be a doctor and take care of sport, my sport heroes. And uh, that was my motivation going forward. I had a surgeon who said that uh, he went into a trauma because if he was going to get called into the operating room at two in the morning, he was going to put something back together. That was his that was his motivation. I'm just curious. Uh, you completed an AO trauma fellowship. What attracted you to fixing broken things? Well, that was part of the game. That was part of orthopedics. Orthopedists had to take call. And what came in at night when we were residents was fractures. And I enjoyed it. So when I was done with my residency, I was trying to arrange a sport medicine fellowship. I had two six-month fellowships set up and one fell through. So we scurried and one of my attendings at the University of Pennsylvania made some calls to the AO people and they found me a place in Innsbruck at the uh, university hospital there, learned some trauma in Austria. Wow. What was that experience like? It was quite remarkable. At the time, Austria had a two-tier system, a public system, which everybody had access to, and a private system. And within the hospitals, they had employed physicians who their job was just like residents forever, taking care of whatever blew in while the upper academic men were specialists that could see private patients. And uh, I was exposed to a lot of sport medicine, which they broke out different departments for sport medicine and fracture work versus the joint replacement. They had a whole different department. So I was with the sport medicine docs and fracture docs, And uh, I actually learned more sports medicine than uh, anything else while I was over there. Now, you went on to complete a Stedman Knee in Sports Medicine Fellowship. And I I wanted to know what your experience was like working with uh, Dr. Stedman. He's quite a legend. 
At that time, he was still in South Lake Tahoe in an orthopedic group, and he had uh, two fellows coming through. And he was doing uh, knee arthroscopies and had an accelerated rehabilitation program for ACL reconstructions that he used with uh, his trainer therapist to help take care of the U.S. ski athletes. And I spent six months up with Dr. Stedman learning his techniques and watching his therapists uh, rehabilitate athletes. It's a beautiful venue. I got to ski quite a bit while I was there because he had U.S. ski team passes for every mountain that was up there. It was a wonderful six months. I enjoyed it very much. And it was one year after I finished that he moved on to Vail and started uh, the Stedman Clinic out there that has just become a powerhouse for sport medicine fellows. You've been practicing medicine uh, where you are for over 30 years now. Tell me about your practice. Have you been in the same group pretty much the whole time? And what are you doing these days? Well, after I finished uh, my fellowship training, I actually practiced in Santa Rosa, California Mm -hmm. for 11 and a half years. And then uh, I made a move at the end of 2000 to join my friends from residency here in uh, northern Illinois. And over the years, we've recruited subspecialists in all different areas. And so my practice, which was mostly sports medicine, fractures, joint replacements, almost a general private practice mix, became more subspecialized into knee surgery, including arthroscopic repairs uh, and primary joint replacements of the hip and knee, which uh, I always enjoyed. There's a couple things that I know are technical passions of yours. FAI is one of them, femoral acetabular impingement. Tell us about it. Yes, femoral acetabular impingement is very similar to impingements in joint hip replacements. Simply the collision between the femur and the pelvis acetabulum. And uh, it's been broken down into femoral-sided problems and the shape and version of the femoral head caused the uh, femur to be at risk of hitting the pelvis. And uh, the pelvis can have too much coverage in the front of the pelvis or a true external rotation deformity of the wings of the ilium and the acetabulum where it faces in a retroverted position that gives the acetabular side for the impingement. And um, I got interested in it mostly because of the similarities that I saw between impingement and joint replacements. Um, and so I started to think of FAI in terms of what I was doing in my research in hip replacements. and. It has led me to almost the same conclusions that the uh, femur, which has a much greater variation in its versions, its uh, shapes, is much more uh, uh, important for impingement than even the acetabular morphology and position. And it turned out to be the same thing in our research in total hip replacements, that uh, impingement is mostly caused by hypermobility of, of the femur because of lost mobility on the pelvic or acetabular side. What's the most common treatment for that? Is that where uh, hip arthroscopy comes into play? I always start with a conservative treatment. I send people to physical therapy. And if they fail physical therapy, as many do, these are young patients, usually very athletic, and uh, I will offer them injections in the hip. If that doesn't work and they have pathology that is amenable to arthroscopic treatment, then I actually refer them to a few of the experts that are national-level hip arthroscopists in our area for their treatment. I read an article just today about that and that uh, the cohort that were untreated, how it led to 
OA of the hip, and they weren't quite sure why that was. I was just curious if you had any thoughts on that. Well, absolutely. In 2003, a landmark paper was published that Dr. Parvizi was part of. It was attributed to Dr. Gans in Switzerland on the association between femoroscapular impingement and mechanical primary arthritis follows uh, developing in the hip was correlated that these micro collisions and collisions would tear up the labrum surrounding the mouth of the socket, cause chondral damage on the socket, and uh, lead to the arthritis that required uh, hip replacements. What type of symptoms would I be experiencing uh, that would lead me to go, oh, I got FAI, I need to go see Dr. Bodner? Uh, how does it present itself? In my practice, the most common presentation is pain in the anterior aspect of the hip. Far, far more common on the anterior aspect than the posterior aspect. Sometimes people will have some abductor area pain as well. And the, there have been descriptions of maneuvers that are used to flex and adduct and internally rotate the hip or flex and abduct and externally rotate the hip and try to simulate the femur impinging on the acetabulum, eliciting pain. You texted me the other day that you were a, a hip guy that lived in the sagittal plane. I love that line, the plane of flexion and extension of the whole body. I want to hear more about that. I know you've done some work with Dr. Dorr in the area of spine and the, the pelvic relationship. Tell me about that whole train of thought and what inspired you. Um, in 2015, I was at the academy meeting, and as I had done for several years, I just wandered the floor looking for something. I wasn't sure what I was looking for. And I met an engineer from one of the companies who told me what they were doing, which included taking x-rays for hip replacement of people's pelvis from the side in different positions so they could understand this patient's pelvic motion and plan their hips accordingly which absolutely stunned me because this is the first time in my whole life that lateral pelvic x-rays were used having to do with anything with the, with the hip. It really motivated me. And the following day, I actually went to a poster session at the meeting. And in the spine section was a poster of the interaction of hips and what it meant for the position of the acetabulum for these different spinal conditions. And that cemented to me that this was something I knew nothing about. It was a chapter that no one ever taught me. So I went back home and I started reading about this. And it, it led me to a, a man in Paris who had one of the first EOS machines, which is a specialized imaging device that you can put a patient standing and sitting and get simultaneous full body x-rays. So you're seeing the patient in space functionally. And he, de he developed this entire field of the relationship between the spine, the pelvis, and the hip. It, it was the most exciting reading I had done in years. And then I looked for the paper that said, great, how are we going to use this information to help our hip patients? And there was nothing. Absolutely nothing. He never developed it. So I kept reading, and then I found uh, a paper by Dr. Dorr in 2014. And then in 2017, another paper came out where he also had thought, like I did, that this was remarkable and needed to be studied and figured out. And Dr. Dorr was the one who decided I'm going to try to figure how to, how to use this sagittal mechanics to individualize and get the cups right for people. So I, I contacted Dr. Dorr uh, out of the blue, a cold call. 
And the guy called me back. He engaged me <laughs> and told me, I don't care what you think. I do, I do research. I have data here. And I said, well, can I uh, understand some of that? And uh, what do you think about this? So I, I would share with him my thoughts, which were mostly um, based around ideas that I had that the health and the spine and the hip are connected like three gears are connected in a row with the pelvis being in the center and the pelvis linked the spine and the hip together. And if that's the case, then this should be this and that should be that. And he would look at his data and say, hmm, that's not bad. Why don't you look at this data and tell me what you think? So before long, I was collaborating with him and his team and providing sort of outside idea consults with him. And it's been a collaboration that's led to my involvement in at least five papers at this point, some that don't have my name on it, some have my name on it, the last three do. And it's it's just been a remarkable experience for me to, to work with uh, Dr. Dorr, who is one of the most brilliant surgeon scientists, maybe uh, of the last generation of hip surgeons. You know, I asked him this question, and I'll ask you, how, how did this get by us for so long? I can tell you what I think on this. The paradigm always was to analyze your hip, lie on our x-ray table, and we'll take an x-ray. And so they would shoot AP x-rays. And then they would measure, you would measure the, the cup. And that's really all you can measure. You can't measure the ephemeral version on a, on a, a AP and even the lateral views uh, that they take of the femur. Difficult to tell the ephemeral version. But the, the standard just became an AP view as it is for planning now. Just you, you use the coronal plane, which is the plane of mechanical reconstruction, to find the center of rotation of the hip, the leg length, the offset, the size of the components. has nothing to do with the orientation of the components. But that's become the standard. That was the standard. And nobody thought that there was information on a lateral view of the pelvis. And it's because the information isn't found looking at the hip joint. The information is found in the relationship between the hip joint and the pelvis. And initially, for many years, that relationship was defined by what's called the anterior pelvic plane. Even the initial Lewinick paper talked and defined the Lewinick plane, which he tried to tilt the pelvis so it was perfectly vertical and then he could compare joints in different positions and came up with his zone where it was safe. But the the APP, which is the anterior pelvic plane, is not part of the, the machinery of the pelvis. The construction, the spatial position, and the mobility. And it's those factors. How much does the pelvis move? Is it frozen or not? That actually is the most important determinant of cup position. The mobility of the femur, mobility of the acetabulum, and the position in space of the pelvis determines where the cup biomechanically should be oriented. So to the surgeon listening to this, and, and I've, I've seen this throughout my career, a patient comes in that's a chronic dislocator, the AP looks perfect, and there's really not a lot of explanation as to what's going on. What would you suggest in terms of radiology study to maybe look at the very parameters that you're talking about? That's a great question, Kevin, because in revision surgery, of which a great percentage is because of instability. It's, in my opinion, it's even more important that you understand the factors 
that cause impingement. You need to do standing, sitting, lateral pelvic x-rays. So you can measure the angles of the cup in a standing and seated position. Uh, supine is five to seven degrees different than the standing position. It says we're, we're measuring our hips in the standing position. We have no idea what that patient's doing when they sit. The difference between supine and sitting is 20 degrees of pelvic rotation, which is Actually, it's 25 from supine and 20 from stand, which is 15 degrees more aniversion of your cup sitting in a normal person than your standing position. So you, if the patient's coming out sitting, you need to know is that cup relatively retroverted in the sitting position or else you don't know. If the, if the cup is in the wrong orientation. Likewise, I think a big problem is to understand that the aniversion of the femur can also get you in trouble. An aniversion of the femur is, is studied classically by getting a CT scan. So you can see where it's, the aniversion is versus the posterior condylars of, condylar line of the knee and determine if it's antiverted too much or not enough. And the range is tremendous on the femur. But with a posterior approach, you can also do an estimation on the table. It's just very difficult with the anterior approach. But sometimes the problem of dislocation if it's a component orientation problem, is on the femoral side. And so don't forget the femoral side. And the third thing is that for acute dislocation, the ones that happen within the first two or three months after uh, the operation, probably the, the number one cause that Dr. Dorr taught me was the hip has inadequate leg length and usually at the same time offset. You could put your components in the absolute bullseye for a person. If you don't get the mechanical reconstruction, which is the coronal plane, if you don't get your hip center offset leg length right, it can come out because there's no tension, muscular tension holding it into, into place. I read an article about that just the other day uh, about cohort of patients where the the offset was not adequately matched up to their preoperative offset. And, and these patients were very unhappy. Uh, the whole thing was just very fascinating to me. So offset is also going to make a big resurgence because it's associated with this spinal pelvic relationship. When patients have a stiff pelvis and a hypermobile femur, the femur wants to collide with the acetabulum and you get impingement that levers the cup out. It's clearly shown that one of the strategies, if you have a fused patient or someone who you actually measure and they have under 10 degrees of standing to sitting mobility of their pelvis, is if you put a bigger offset prosthesis on, you're driving the impinging femur, which is the greater trochanter, you're driving it away from the pelvis. Paper just came out that said uh, for, it might be something like every millimeter of extra offset, you gain five degrees of flexion internal rotation before you impinge. Mm -hmm. So one of the strategies, the strategies for people with stiff pelvis, fused lumbar spines, low motion, the cup has to go in high meaning higher inclination and higher aniversion. You have to increase the offset and you can increase leg length a little bit because the key is to try to get the femur away from impinging on the uh, acetabulum. And bony impingement is, is much more common 
than component impingement. This is just fascinating stuff. I mean, for years, whenever uh, I was involved in a case and an x-ray got put before me, a patient that was dislocating, we're always looking at the same stuff, right? AP pelvis and what does it look like and really not thinking of anything else. And now I'm starting to look for those things. Is Is the spine fused? Do I see hardware up there? That maybe that's um, uh, that's taking us down this road, and maybe a dual mobility, and, and that's that leads me to my next question. A dual mobility is kind of the go-to for a lot of people in scenarios like this. If you have a patient where this um, this spinopelvic relationship is what it is, and it's not being addressed by the implant placement, will a dual mobility get you out of jail free, or is it just kicking the can down the road? It's terrific. It's terrific question, Kevin. What I would like to tell people is that it's not just looking for industry to solve yet another problem with another device. The problem is we need to improve our operation. So we're putting our components in the positions that work for the patient individually. The, the Question, Doc, where do you like to put your cup? And if it's answered, I like it 38.18, I like it 40.20, then that's old thinking. It's time for surgeons to change the way they think and the way they do the operation to improve the operation. A dual mobility cup is a solution for two problems that actually are are related. One is that there's a fused spine. Something doesn't move. But if something doesn't move, it won't dislocate. The, the fused spine is actually a hypermobile femur because they're connected. No, no pelvic movement, no spine movement. Guess what moves when you sit down? It's all femur. Wow, that's good. So you put the cup in, to protect against a hypermobile femur. The other indication is the young yoga teacher, person who wants to do incredible range of motion with their hip. Again, you're protecting against motion. A dual mobility is a device that can protect against greater motion. And it works. I mean, it's working. It, it will work for these situations in primary, and there's lots of data that shows it's a good solution for revisions, which have a much higher uh, instability rate. But the thing you can't forget is it matters what position you put your dual mobility in. It's still a cup. And if you have a stiff patient, the dual mobility should go in the same location as the bullseye of a regular mobility. It's just a better device. So, if you're putting it in for a stiff person uh, that's stiff on the acetabular side, you need to you need to put it in in high inclination and high aversion, like 45-25. If you're doing it for a yoga teacher, you've got to know what the pelvic motion is too. You know the femoral motion much, but if they ha- have a high pelvic motion which is over 30 degrees between standing and sitting, the cup angle actually has to go in low because you're putting it in near the standing position. This person has a large excursion of motion of their pelvis. It has to do its job at the other extreme. So you start the standing position low, and when they sit and flex their spine hip, the cup opens up, but it doesn't open up too much. So you have a sitting cup that's absolutely vertical, and they can, if they bring their knees up to their chest, they could potentially come out the back. It's a whole different way of thinking about what we're doing, and that's 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 my message. It's it's like starting over again in an improved way to plan our surgeries. So the docs are evolving, not just the parts evolving. To the surgeon that's listening, that's like uh, saying to him or herself, I've got 65, 70 patients in clinic tomorrow. What would be your advice of just a couple things they could add to their flow that would provide this information for them, help them dial in things just a little tighter uh, on their cup positioning? The first 
addition, if you're going to start evaluating people, is to take lateral standing and sitting x-rays of the person's pelvis so you can measure either the APP or preferably the sacral slope, the slope of S1 to the horizontal. And we look at this, we look at this exact slope when we look at kids who have spondylolisthesis or a slip. It's associated with high sacral slopes where the top of S1 slopes down as, a, as opposed to a flatter or horizontal. You measure that, which is the same delta between standing and sitting as the delta between the APP, which is not so easy to measure in the sitting position because the cubic synthesis is not an easy point to see with the femurs in the sitting position. So the sacral slope is very easy. And if this change between standing and sitting is 10 to 30 degrees, you're in a normal range and you can do what you usually do unless you have a femoral outlier. <laughs> but if it's over 30 degrees, you put your, your cup should go in low. If it's under 10 degrees, the cup needs to go in high. And if it's under 10 degrees, that's one of the indications that I begin thinking about using a dual mobility cup. Pelvic mobility, changing the way you do hip replacement. Now that's, that's something really new, really out there, huh? I mean, it's a, it's a different way of thinking about what we've done for so long. So speaking of really out there, I know you're interested in creation of these platforms of data management. I think we call them ecosystems, uh, predictive analytics. Tell me a little bit about that. When I started doing uh, the algorithms for planning of total hips, I realized that the plan is just a central part of a whole flow of information that can help multiple people. So you, you, whatever you want to study, you gather the information on the patient from the beginning. And you can actually come up and uh, classify patients in a risk profile for all kinds of risks. And then you plan that person's surgery with the inputs that you need to personalize their operative execution, you keep all the data from the surgical experience, feed it into a giant cloud computer that has every surgeon's cases in it. What happened? What was uh, the choice of, of implant? Hook to what that pelvis and what that person's hip looked like. What were the complications? And that data is analyzed so you can improve constantly the experience, the outcomes, and improve the whole process. And so this is an ecosystem. This is what an ecosystem is. It's the management of patient-related data, experience-related data, implant-related data, and studying it for continuously improving the process and allowing the different users access to the information that is important to them so surgeons can learn and so surgeons can have the opportunity in the operating room if something goes wrong, instead of looking at the rep and saying, oh, what, what are my options now? What do I do now? That you just ask the computer. The computer will say, in this case, we have... 450 of these, and the best outcomes occurred when you did this. And this is thank you very much. That's what I'm most interested in, in developing complete platforms uh, to take surgery from uh, this artistic level to an engineered, data-driven platform that includes analytics 
that can be used in a predictive fashion. So if Kevin, you came in to see me today and you, I evaluate you, I would say, well, your hip should go in this position because right now you're here, but in 20 years, you're going to look like this and your hip is going to move from this position to that position. And so this is the best position for you to be put in now. And I believe that this is all possible with uh, the right system and the experience. And I think that's where a lot of digital medicine is heading. I remember a doctor telling me that uh, we did a we did a case together, and he said, "I'm just stomping out arthritis one patient at a time." And I guess with a keto, you just uh, start kicking its butt a different way, right? <laughs> Tell me, uh, tell me about Aikido and what what drew you to that one and that that particular discipline and and what do you love about it? Uh, I uh, w- was living in California at the time and uh, I had always played basketball and I had done triathlon things and I was looking for something a little different in my life, uh, something that I had read had a little bit of a spiritual component to it. And down the street from where I lived was a martial arts studio that did several martial arts, including Aikido. And I wandered in one night to watch a class. And what I saw was um, very technical art based on joint locks and manipulations, controlling the other person through their body and understanding their balance and momentum using that and the the ability to lock their joints. And I said, wow, I see what's happening, but I never knew the body worked like that. And so I said, let me start this. Let me try this. So I started doing it and uh, I I enjoyed it very much. And then about a year later, um, my teacher's teacher from Japan came. And I went to a facility and saw him doing Aikido and uh, another art, a 600-year-old Japanese school of uh, traditional weaponry, swords and spears and two knives. And it blew me away. And I said, can I do that? (laughs) They invited me to do this. And uh, I've done it for the past 25 years. I it's my main form of exercise. I, 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 it, it's based on movement and um, not fighting force with force. And believe it or not, Kevin, everything comes from your pelvis. <laughs> your <laughs> your energy comes from your pelvis. Why does this not surprise me? <laughs> so, I, I mean, I... I tell people I have two senses of the pelvis. One is Larry Dor, <laughs> and one is my sensei from Japan. And it's become uh, the central part, believe it or not, the central part of my life is the pelvis. You've been doing this for over 30 years now. Um, any advice to, to surgeons just coming out? Well, the development of a young surgeon is a, is a process. Uh, and... The first few years are quite trying, really, uh, because you do have some internal insecurities. There's no safety net anymore like you had in, in training. And just understand that it, it's a process. And one day, all of a sudden, you won't have all your materials that you study and study and study before a case. All of a sudden, you'll say, you know, I know how to do that case. I'm comfortable with that case. And, uh, and that's that's the development. And the other is to um, seek out good partners. And that is uh, the, the staff in the operating room and your reps, because your reps have the experience that you don't. And they can, they can help you so much, and they truly are your partners in getting these cases done. Because all, so many orthopedic cases require instrumentation and hardware and that's different than just learning how to make a surgical approach uh, and how to treat something this is how to fix it 
that would be my advice. Kate. A lot of reps listen to this show, and I was just curious if uh, if you were advising your kid or or me if I was just starting out and coming to you for advice. What would you throw out there for um, for the reps in your room? The experienced reps are comfortable. It's the same thing. It's a it's a process. The young reps, I think, all they can do is listen to their mentors and prepare 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 because listening to your show kevin what i've got from your incredible guests is that they want the rep to answer the questions that they don't know (laughs) and the only way you can do that is prepare learn as much as you can about your products especially the intricacies of sizings and thicknesses and the differences between one and the other because the surgeon is trying to make a decision between one or the other and he doesn't have that information at his disposal. But one day he will with my computers, Kevin. <laughs> it will all be, what's the difference between size six and seven in the polyethylene of this? Boom. Here's your answer. It's 1.1 millimeter. Thank you very much. Dr. Bodner, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate your passion over all things pelvic. (laughs) And I know my audience is going to get so much out of this. Uh, Thank you for taking some time out to to share your thoughts on this really timely subject. And I'm really appreciative, sir. Well, Kevin, it's been an honor to to speak with you. And I want to congratulate you on the work that you're doing. I've been listening to your podcast and the guests are remarkable orthopedic surgeons and your questions are wonderful. And I've learned as much from these podcasts as I do from any lecture or a course uh, over the same amount of time. They're just a delight to listen to. Wow, you just made my year with that comment, sir. I mean, that's what it's all about, just trying to provide value to the listener and that that everybody that that takes 30 minutes or 45 minutes or an hour to listen to the show, that they walk away with something that they didn't have that's going to help them next week. So that's that's awesome. It's just remarkable, Kevin. I I think you're on to something here that is really special. I'll never forget my moment when I was at the academy as a young buck, and I thought I knew a little bit about things, and and all of a sudden I ended up in a conversation with Paul Lockie, and I had no idea who he was and that he had written textbooks on orthopedic uh, procedures and the wealth of knowledge that he was just in that conversation, it just inspired me. Uh, I love being around people where I can learn something from them. And the guests that we've been very fortunate to have on the show have provided uh, just that. Paul Lockie was my attending at University of Pennsylvania. You're he kidding was me. my new guru. Wow. It is a small Absolutely. world. It's a small world. That was just an awesome conversation. Yes, we were in some deep waters, and yes, you're probably going to have to listen to it a couple times. I certainly have, but it's worth it. It is so awesome having this information at your disposal. You just got to trust me on it. I'm going to tell you in a minute how it came together for me. One thing I'm truly thankful for is that Dr. Bodner has given us special access to his hospital's beta copy of his predictive analytics software program. And we're going to give it a trial run, a maiden voyage on Device Nation. Computer, I have an awesome product for Dr. Russell Bodner that he wants to use in surgery next Tuesday. It will save the hospital money, and he wants it in his hands for that case. Please submit information to Value Analysis Committee, and I will see to it this product will never see the light of day. As Napoleon Dynamite so eloquently said, it's a piece of crap. It doesn't work. Or some may argue in administration, no, it works perfectly and has designed. Well, one thing that is an amazing design is the human body. And when we get into these hips and things are not going well, this information is super powerful stuff. 
I've had to walk this issue out, even in my own personal life. I had a surgeon bring me an x-ray of a hip he had done. It was absolutely perfect, suitable for framing. Patient kept dislocating. And he was like, what in the world is going on? Had I not talked to Dr. Bodner, I don't think I ever would have picked up on the fact that in the AP view of this patient, there was no hardware in the spine, but that lumbar area had completely autofused. One solid mass, and it led to an awesome conversation with the surgeon about at least exploring the possibility that this was what was going on and then what the strategy would be to correct that. So the work that went into figuring out this really nerdy stuff, it paid off. I felt like I got an opportunity to bring value to the conversation with a surgeon and ultimately that patient. Just an awesome moment. Knowledge is power on this subject. One way that really helped me get my arms around it was this stupid little story. I had a surgeon come into an OR front desk one day, and he was saying that, okay, I've got this case coming up, but you know what? There's another patient right behind it that's coming down, and we've got to be ready for that because he said, that train's coming. And he was really upset about the whole thing, and he goes, the train's coming. Choo, choo. And everybody just looked down at their papers and tried not to laugh. He's he's very angry about what was going on and being held up. But saying that in front of a crowd of people, uh, I barely held it together. But you know what? I fall back on that story to help make sense out of the femoral hypermobility aspect of this puzzle, is that when the spine and the pelvis have taken that function of mobility out of the equation. Now the femur is picking up the slack and moving more. That's where that hypermobility comes. The train's coming. Choo, choo. So we got to get that cup out of the way. Hence, the more antiversion and the more inclination that you're dialing in, you're getting the cup out of the way because that femoral is hypermobile. So some of this stuff is starting to come together for me. The pelvic mobility, I'm still working on that. But you know, that is part of the process. And that's what we're going to talk about just for a second. I love this quote by Alabama native Zig Ziglar from Coffee County. There are no traffic jams on the extra mile. And you know what? You're going to have to do the extra mile to grasp stuff like this. And this is what separates Rep A from Rep B. We talked about the tripod of medical device sales. And just for review, it is the selling function. That is how you present products and close an order. And then there's the relationship side. That's two prongs of the table. And the third one is the technical aspect of this job. The first two that I talked about, a lot of times people can just kind of coast on that. They're good at that. They're good at the back and forth. They're good at the social, the familial, the presentation, and they don't really have to work hard on it. This one, though, nobody's born knowing what sacral slope is or even how it relates to how you put a cup in, or any of these things. How to downsize a femoral implant, how to do a modular hip replacement, how to do augments in an acetabular defect. These things take study, and they take time. And the thing that stands in the way, can we be honest for a second? And it might surprise you, but it's fear. The young reps, you're working so hard to prove yourself, and you don't want anything that can set you back on that quest. So reaching out for some of these things that are some deep waters, you're worried about what people are going to think about you, so you don't do it. You need to be able to reach out. These kind of concepts are not going to come to you automatically, so Reach out and don't let your pride and your ego get in the way. The older reps have this same issue. Oh, you've been doing this for 15 years. You're asking that question? So then they don't say anything and they just try to BS their way through it sometimes, right? I mean, if we're honest, uh, it's just as challenging for the tenured reps sometimes uh, to not really tackle some of these weightier subjects or just try to massage their way around it. 
because they don't want to come out and ask anybody. And let's flip this thing around. And this is where it gets super interesting to me. Let's all look in the mirror for just a second. Okay. You're visualizing that. We're looking in the mirror. How many people have you asked for help on some of these super technical things? You got a brand new knee revision system out. It's complicated. You've got a hip revision system that's just mind boggling. You're wondering who came up with this? Have you reached out for help about it? Have you said, hey, can I get together with you and let's go over the instruments with this? Walk me through this with somebody you know that that has it down. Have you really done that ever? That's question number one. But then question number two, has anybody ever asked you any questions about anything? Oh, we're getting to meddling now. I had a rep call me from the West Coast with a question that wasn't that complicated. However, he told me that he could not ask this of his team lead because of what that team lead would say in response. That team lead was creating an atmosphere of fear, not enabling his younger minions to feel confident that they could ask a question without being ridiculed or held in some low regard. You need to create an atmosphere, a judgment-free zone, so to speak, where no one is afraid to ask any questions. So if you're driving down the road listening to this episode and you know in your heart nobody has ever asked you anything, I want to at least give you an opportunity to think about that for a moment. Uh, Have you not really grabbed a hold of this technical knowledge so that somebody else can mine it out of you? Or number two, are you presenting yourself in such a way? And sometimes we do this stuff inadvertently. We don't set out to be this way. But are you creating this atmosphere around you where nobody would ever ask you a question because they're afraid they might get it wrong or that you would see them in a negative light? So don't go all Debbie Downer on me right now. Let's keep our chin up and just be able to self-reflect. The unexamined life is not worth living, right? So let's land this plane with really some awesome news. Dr. Bodner was so gracious to me. I didn't understand this stuff. It was gibberish. It all sounded like Charlie Brown's teacher to me. And he spent time with me on a Zoom call And we templated cases together. He was showing me what to look for and helping me with planning and how to look at these angles and what they all meant. It was so powerful. As a result of that, he offered to do the same for the Device Nation audience, which I am so pumped about. So we're going to schedule it. I want you to be on the lookout for it. Uh, You can participate in this and actually interactively template hips with Dr. Bodner, and he's going to show you x-rays of patients that have this issue, patients that don't, so you'll be able to see the difference, and you're going to get some amazing information out of it. And I'm so thankful that I crossed paths with him, because I, like I said, I never would have picked up this stuff had I not. Thank you so much for being a part of the conversation. Thank you, Dr. Bodner. Really appreciate that, and I'm thankful in advance for making time to to go over these x-rays with my audience, and we're all going to be better for it. So let's all be steadfast in the sagittal plane. Let's all be able to use spinopelvic mobility in a sentence correctly. And most importantly, let's all be safe.